Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Uh, this is my second app, second focus episode. And today I'm joined by Chris Jackson, Keith Fatterham, Sean Wright, and Veronica Stamati to discuss the application security risks in open source supply chains. Uh, before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Chris, do you want to kick us off with a brief introduction? Yep, thanks, Gareth. Uh, good to be here. Chris uh, from Security Cyber, Managing Director there, as well as uh, Principal Security Engineer at Flow Health. Sweet. Keith? Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Keith Batram, and I am the AppSec Practice Lead at Comtex and Echo. Sean? Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, I'm Sean Rudd. I'm Principal Application Security Engineer at Feature Space. And Veroniki. Hi, everyone. I'm Veroniki Stamati. I'm the Associate Director of Security Engineering in Flutter International, who looks after a number of online gaming brands like PokerStars. Perfect. Uh, sweet. So um, you'll all have a question or statement um, regarding to application security risks and open source supply chains. Um, I'll, wor- I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and I suppose the reason behind it. And then each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. Um, Sean, as it was yourself that kind of gave me the idea to um, talk about this topic, I'll come to you first. Sure. Um, so my question is, what's the risk that organizations can face when it comes to open source supply chains? Sweet. Veronica, do you want to kick us off? Yep, absolutely. Uh, what's the risk? The multiple risks, as we probably all, all know, right? Um if people are very interested in the topic, they might have already read the uh, sort of open source uh, state of play from various reports like GitHub and people are publishing, right? So generally speaking, the things that we're seeing today in my organization and others is that all of our development communities are just going, I want to develop something fast. I don't want to re-engineer the wheel. I want to utilize this grade of open source uh, solutions, codes, repos, uh, libraries, everything out there that one can do and deliver a product or a feature really, really faster, right? So why not use it? Of course you will. But in terms of the risk, when you then do this and you bring it on, is like, how do I, as a security engineering lead, that I am responsible, for example, to make so that everything we build is built right, is built securely, doesn't that bring me a security risk? How do I know how the uh, maintainer of that repository is applying security principles in their code. How do I know that there is no vulnerabilities in that code and so on and so forth? So from a security perspective, when it does come to open source and the supply chain is increasing, uh, outside of uh, projects, outside of processes that we would usually and normally have to do the classic due diligence of like, well, I'm engaging with a supply chain provider and therefore I would do my security due diligence. So the, the risk profile is increasing, which is the major sort of element in it, but also I am having technology security risk of introducing vulnerabilities in my features, my platform, my code base that I'm not in control of. So these are the two core ones that I, I kind of like tackle day in, day out with the team. Okay, perfect. Chris, I'll come to you next. Yeah, look, I mean, supply chain risks are um, ever-present and a hot topic these days um, due to the risks that they pose. Uh, From my perspective, um, some of the main aspects that I look to deal with on a day-to-day basis are third-party dependencies, et cetera. Um, And how do you manage that risk uh, with regards to 
what you're introducing into your environments, et cetera. Um, there's a variety of tools that we look to adopt as well. Sneak obviously is, is quite a good one in terms of mapping its dependencies, but there's a lot of uh, complications that go with trying to manage that in itself. Um, so it can be a complicated task. I think the main thing uh, to get things right here is having a team that is able to look at that, prioritize what it is that you need to look at remediating and uh, make the right decisions on the back of those assessments um, and having a proper process in place that supports uh, the dealing of these issues. Perfect. Keith? So for me, the main one is in uh, configuration management because quite often I see uh, teams or indeed you know intra team issues where you have multiple versions of the same library so you, you know and, and once you're into that position the other the other item is that um, a lot of the scanning uh, software out there is particularly noisy they're very good at telling you that a particular library has vulnerability in it but it doesn't necessarily tell you whether you're actually using that vulnerable component or not. Perfect. I, I'm getting a lot of nods across the, across the board. Um, Sean, I'll come back to you. Yeah, great. Thanks. Um, so I think one of the other aspects of this is just the sheer volume. Um, if we look at the way that we do develop now, we, we don't just develop things from the ground up. Our view development is like gluing different components together. Um, you'd really go and build your own thing from scratch. And as a result of that, you have a massive deluge of libraries and frameworks being pulled in. This library depends on this library, that depends on that library, and you suddenly have 100, 200, so on and so forth, amount of libraries. Um, so you have this wealth or this volume of libraries that you get to go and, and, and triage and all the vulnerabilities, as Keith pointed out. Um, that's the, the massive wealth of that. But then also from an attacker point of view, it's very easy to start hiding yourself. You just have to compromise one of those libraries. And so it's a malicious backdoor, and you don't even have to compromise a library. You could, you could create a fictitious library that actually does something and insert a backdoor in there. And how would you know? Um, so I think, to me, that's probably one of the, the more alarming um, areas of risk is how many of these libraries have these things that we just simply don't know about. Okay, so again, a lot of nodding, a lot of people agreeing with you, I think, there, Sean. Um, I, I suppose as we dive into the technical aspect then, um, Chris, I'll, I'll come to you next. As I, you know, I think assessing vulnerable code is a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, as, as I said, you know, having uh, pipelines in place uh, and controls for dependency management like Sneak, et cetera, are uh, a crucial piece of the puzzle here. However, as Sean rightly uh, pointed out, uh, sometimes can, that can be very overwhelming in terms of the dependencies and the dependencies that have dependencies, et cetera, and how far do you go down the tree and where do you start to look at saying what components are being utilized, as Keith had mentioned, uh, what components are being utilized by your implementation of this dependency? And are you actually vulnerable? How do you go about assessing that in your current environment? It becomes a very difficult task to look at. 
Perfect. Do you want to do you want to kick us off with the um, with with your question? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so very closely related to my previous statement, it was uh, how do you assess vulnerable code uh, and make decisions about open source components, considering the potential presence of unutilized code paths, and what effective approaches have people found um, to mitigate against this? Keith, it's a big topic. This one and. One of the things that I'm a, a big fan of is only providing access to sanctioned repositories, i.e. you're going to clone those uh, those particular uh, components into your own in-house uh, store and only allow access to those because then you can actually do some proper due diligence on them. Um, you can you can scan them yourselves. You can have a level of uh, in, in, diligence in there. You know, much much like you you can do already with Maven packages, right? But taking it to a, another level, just to safeguard yourselves. Sweet. Veronica. Uh, I would 100% agree with Keith. It's one of the things we're pushing quite heavily here as well. And in previous organizations that I was to have like an artifactory store for those where we can go, yeah, all these are security approved. If you use it, I don't need to worry about it. Um, but it's not enough as, as we know. Um, we get a lot of other people who are going, okay, don't want to use this, or the bypass, it depends on the deployment pipelines and various ways of working that they have, and that depends on your maturity. You know, do you have a single um, CICD pipeline that allows you to control that, yes, this is actually used from my repository versus not, et cetera. So for me, I think it comes back to the core of enhancing an organization with true engineering principles. So let's move away from security for a second. But if you make sure that your engineers and your developers follow the right engineering principles, then surely you shouldn't have, from a code quality perspective, code paths and sections that they do not do anything for your for your repository. So how do we, end, as security people, engage with like our tech leads, our engineering leads, to make sure, like, do we have good metrics of code quality in the first place. So that's a, that has helped me in situations to kind of go, well, when you speak to a tech lead and engineering lead, they probably are more eager to see their code run faster. And therefore you could go, well, have you checked if you've got orphan libraries or things that you don't use and therefore you can get rid of them anyway. And they would do that easier than going than me going and saying, you might have a security risk there because you're not using something. So that has worked well on the more softer side of things rather than on the tooling side of things as such. And obviously there are there is tooling around code quality uh, as well that one can, can kind of blend in with this uh, from my point of view. So to add on what Keith said as a separate point to help is, is this. Perfect. Come to you, Sean. Um, I actually got a couple things. Um, so one is S bombs. Now, finally, we getting a talk about S bombs. The the thing that drove me up the wall when Log4j came out was people didn't know where they were using it. They had no idea where they were using it. And the reason why it drove me up the wall is a few years prior we had Equifax, who also 
had a vulnerability in a software. And that should have been the alarm bells that people need to start making sure that they're auditing what they're using and where they're using it. Um, so to me, that that was like an area that just really got me frustrated. I don't think we still learned the lesson. Um, and then the other thing that I think is really important is we need to get back to basics. So when we look at security, we need to do a layered approach. Assume that sometimes you may be breached. How many organizations are blocking outbound connections? To me, that's probably the one of the best ways to mitigate some of these back or mitigate a lot of the backdoors. You should know exactly where your server is connect, connecting to outbound. Um, so block anything, and that will immediately put a block on those. And then lastly, there are tools out there such as um, Artifactory was mentioned, and they had X-ray. Um, I know JFrog, the, the makers of Artifactory, are doing an awesome job in the research, and they put that into their tool X-ray, and it combines looking at the source code and the libraries to see if the um, call paths have been called. I know Veracode does something similar. So you're now starting to see, okay, well, we have this vulnerable library. Are we actually vulnerable? Uh, is our code using that? And then to the the fact that if it's stale code, can we remove it? So on and so forth. Chris, and I'll, I'll come back to you for your thoughts. Absolutely, really great uh, thoughts from everybody. I think um, just to add to everybody's points here, I think that security a lot of the times is um, a trade-off between uh, usability of functionality, and you've only got a finite amount of resources as a security team. So you need to at some point. Uh, identify what is good enough in your processes and stuff that you can you can deal with, um, and then look to have a layered approach with regards to your your testing strategy. So, having your identification of what assets you own, the management of those, are those updated, etc. Do those have vulnerabilities in them? Are they being patched, etc. And then something that, that falls through the gaps there potentially may be caught by your traditional sort of testing side of things. So. I think a layered approach with this, in addition to Sean's uh, comments about monitoring your outbound traffic, I think is a good way to uh, mitigate against that. Keith, let me come to you next for your question. The question is subtly different, really, and it's all around how you're going to position and establish that communication with uh, leadership around product risk specifically. How are you going to go to them with the challenges what's going to be required in terms of the tooling and processes, et cetera, that need to be employed to keep them safe. And that's the key. A lot of, I'd, I'd say even product owners, don't necessarily fully understand whether or not their products are safe and secure. So it's how, how do you approach that conversation? Perfect. Sean, I'll come to you next. Is that all right? Great, thank you. Um, I think one of the things, if we're talking to leadership, we have to start communicating on their language. So if you're talking to high-level uh, leadership, we we better stop talking about attacks and sophisticated groups and start talking things in the business sense. What does it mean for the organization? Um, it probably wouldn't have planned out that way. So I certainly think, um, especially to the the, the upper uh, leadership, um, that communication is really key that you get in 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 their language and things that make that matter to them. Okay, Chris, I'll come to you. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree with with that comment. Um, you you need to speak the same language, and you need to be to the point, and um, you need to drive the agenda uh, that you're looking to achieve in a way that they can digest easily and understand without losing uh, the context of things, but also losing without losing the overall um, sense of what the risk is here to the business. You always need to tie it back to what the business risk is here, because ultimately we're all running. Uh, security operations for businesses. Perfect. And Veronica? Uh, I echo both uh, Son, Chris. I think like uh, to give a bit more pragmatic and uh, specific examples as well to help uh, others, because I think between between us, we probably kind of seen this. Um, one of the things that worked really, really well in my situation, and we did mention Log4j, I've dealt with this in two different organizations that have very, very different tooling maturity and capability, for example, right? Uh, in one, we were really fast in finding out where we had, because we had the tooling, we had uh, code ownership, we knew people who were quite quick in putting it all together to respond to this. Um, in another organization, we didn't have all that. So it took months to even get to a point that we really had a 100% understanding whether we have missed anything. And I'm saying months because you know how when you engage with teams, they do something else at the time. We obviously, you know, all hands on deck for all critical exposed services. We sorted that out very quickly, but then there is a backlog that remains, which you forget. If you take all of this time and you equate it to the cost of the people that were involved into responding to those incidents, then you have a very good number that your leadership, your board, the people who are not technical and they don't care about supply chain attacks, they don't understand open source security, they not, don't understand technical vulnerabilities, and especially your product people, which is the ones you definitely need to have a buy-in from to go, look, the risk to our organization if that happened, even if it is not a monetary one, that you know we didn't get breached fair enough we managed to respond to it and close the doors and we're good enough to like we didn't lose anything but there was still a risk that was materialized in terms of like people had to be diverted and you had a development risk because your feature wasn't rolled out in time that you were wanted to get into your customers that would have brought you x amount of revenue so there is other ways that we should be thinking about the risks to present them into the business uh, at leadership level so we can then go, all right, so how do I prevent this from happening again? And then we can deal with the tech teams to kind of sort out all the technology, the security stuff, et cetera. Fine. Okay, so I'll come back to you. And what a way to close. You know, that is absolutely, it's absolutely right. It's getting people to understand the opportunity cost of these things. Every time you divert resources from working on new features, that's RevGen that you're missing out on. You know, and it really does stack up. Perfect. So, so is that the is, is that the answer to the to the question? Then we you just need to quantify you know the the value of the risk in, in in terms of you know business risk to the senior leaderships to be able to for them to be able to see from your point of view. No, what, what you need to do is communicate in the same language. And the language of the people that run the business is one of risk and revenue. Perfect.
Okay, sweet. And uh, Veronica, um, we've got your question left. Do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I think the question that I had kind of relates back a little bit to the more technical conversation that we had earlier. Uh, but it does also relate to, to what we just uh, discussed, because if you want to go to your board and say this is the risk, one of the questions that it will tell you is, so is this a real risk? So my question is, how do you ensure that there is enough context within the situation of the vulnerability being raised or not to understand the real level of the open source vulnerabilities reported when relying on automated scanning as a solution, for example, because a lot of the businesses do. Perfect. Chris? I think a key part of that is to paint the right picture for them. Um, you can have lots of vulnerabilities uh, in a system that are not necessarily directly accessible from the outside or from different vantage points. And I think if you're able to articulate and paint the right picture for the board to see and the probability aspect on that as well, you'll get your message across a lot quicker and a lot more efficiently. And I think once it's understood at that sort of level, you have the right sort of level of adoption and, and traction in terms of the remediation efforts that they're willing to put um, resources behind. Perfect. Keith, I'll come to you. Yeah, for me, it's about being able to demonstrate exploitability. You can have lots of vulnerabilities. They can even be deemed critical. But the reality is that they may not be exploitable. So it's very easy for people to look at numbers and go, oh, my God, you know, this is terrible, terrible, terrible. But you have, if you have the ability to temper that and say, hey, listen, these are the mitigations which are in place, which mean that whereas you're seeing a base level of a 9.8, the reality for us is it's medium. You know, it's, it's, it's something like... A, uh, 5.3 or something like that. It, it's about having that maturity to say, hey, look, this is a problem. It does need to get fixed at some point. But at the moment, we have something in place. John? Kind of lean on from Keith's points. We have to stop taking at value the score. So CVSS score is just a number. It, on its own, it's absolutely meaningless. Uh, we have to evaluate vulnerabilities for your own environment, your own context. Something 9.8 could be absolutely meaningless if it's low value, low priority data, low sensitivity data, it's probably meaningless. Whereas a five could suddenly mean a, a big thing to your organization. So my recommendation is look at things like your CVSS vector rather than a score, because that will tell you a lot more and then use the things like temporal scores and that and cut, tune it to your environment, your context. Also really exciting is CVSS4 is coming out later this year, and that looks to address a lot of the issues around the current CVSS, because this current one doesn't have a great reputation for the reasons that we, we stated already. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays into it. Um, and then one other challenge around this, and I've faced this numerous times, is trying to get the relevant data or information around the vulnerability. If you're talking things like Apple, um, even Oracle, their, their details around the vulnerability is extremely vague. So trying to work out, hey, what does this mean for my organization is extremely difficult. And then you have conflicting views across different vulnerability databases and that. It's challenging. 
um, my advice is try to get as much data as you can on the vulnerability so you can get that much clearer picture of what the vulnerability actually means for you. Perfect. Veronica, I'll come back to you to summarize. It, it's brilliant to hear what, what my peers are saying because it's exactly my, my thinking, right? So we, we are looking at it from really two perspectives. One is know your context in an organization. Make sure that you've got all of your assets in a CMDB asset register, something that they have a score with. Have you attached tags to your resources into your cloud resources to know is this publicly accessible or not? Is where, where do you get your context and invest in this? Because otherwise you might go to people and say, oh, we found a critical vulnerability here. And then we go, so what? It's in our QA environment. <laughs> and uh, then you you lose your uh, your credibility. And the second part, because CVSS uh, score was mentioned, I did look at the CVSS for uh, specifications. So, and trust me, it's just like they made it so much more complex than it was. So I do have my opinions on it, but it definitely tries to address some of those problems. I'm a big fan of the EPSS score for people who are listening to us here. And uh, one of the things we've done really well here, which has helped us with the scoring element of it, is like bringing tooling that gives us threat intelligence data, not just from an EPSS perspective score, but also like, okay, is this being talked about in the black market or in the Twitter? Is this actually being trending as a vulnerability? And so on and so forth. And we managed to get tooling in place that gives us automatically some of this adjusts the score that we get from our uh, local sort of scanners. So we then move a step forward so to, to remediate with more priority and know, you know, is this a malware um, uh, impacting vulnerability and therefore we've got a risk of infection if we don't fix it or is this a remote code execution, for example, that we then obviously allowing an ex exposed resource uh, to the internet and therefore, yeah, definitely that's a P1, P0, depending on what language you use. So uh, I'm really, really glad to hear that everybody on the call are kind of like agrees on those two aspects. Perfect. Would anyone like to follow up? I just want to add to to the EPSS, that's, that's a really good metric. Another good really metric or list to look at is the CISA Known Exploited Vulnerabilities Catalog or CISA Keef. Um, it contains software, but it also contains uh, software packages that are unknown to be exploited. So that's definite giveaway. If you see something on that list, you should tackle those with a pretty sense uh, of urgency because, yeah, those have obviously been targeted in the world. Perfect. Listen, it, it's it's amazing for someone like me that doesn't come from a, a technical background at all. Obviously, you all, all you guys will know I'm a recruiter. So being able to kind of just sit in a, in a room and just let you chat and me try and listen and absorb as much as I can is so much helpful for, for me in my career and kind of what I'm trying to do in our side of the business as well. So I, I thank you all for coming, um, sharing your knowledge. Keith, I know you've just unmuted your mic. Yeah, I, I think that it's really important, especially when you think about the recruitment industry, that the recruiters themselves have a baseline level of knowledge. And can you imagine how much more useful it would be for talking to a candidate or talking to a client and actually knowing yeah. that, ah, right, yeah, I, I get that. I understand where this is going. And it, it, it is, it's really important, Gareth. 
exactly that. And, and listen, that that is that is the aim. Um, that's the whole point. Obviously, I, you know, we're giving back to the community as well, which is very important for me to be able to give back rather than just seem to be, you know, take take taking. I suppose so. Um, I suppose we'll leave it there. Um, this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank Chris, Keith, Sean, and Veronica for providing the insights into the topic as thought leaders in the industry. Uh, I'll let you know where you can find them on social media uh, in the comments on the post on LinkedIn. I know Sean also has a monthly podcast that he hosts himself as well, so I'll give him the opportunity to plug that in. Uh, if you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts in the AppSec world, then reach out to me on LinkedIn um, or, or email me at gareth.davis at evolutionjobs.co.uk. See you next time, and I'll stop recording there.